This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair Number 374, October 30, 1996. This evening, Douglas Murray, Andrew Sandlin, Mark Rushduni, and I will be discussing the uh, substance of a few books. First of all, a very remarkable book by Dorothy Alford, M.D., Instant Creation, Not Evolution, An Alternative View of the Origin of Man and the Universe. This book was uh, published in 1978 by Stein and Day and uh, did not get the attention it should have had, but it's a very important work. Again, this is a book I wish we had money to reprint. Her thesis is a very, very important one. What she says is that evolution is not possible. The intermediate stages required by an evolution of the body or of any animal or of any creature is impossible. That death would set in when uh, any variation of a significant form takes place. In fact, she gives uh, considerable space to going into all the various uh, variations, Down syndrome, uh, sickle cell anemia, Marfan syndrome, dwarfs and midgets, Huntington's chorea, and so on, pointing out how these are not dramatic variations, but they're variations from the standard which lead to serious problems, diseases, and death. Let me read one section, or a portion of it. Uh, on temperature control in the body. The body has a temperature control center in the anterior portion of the hypothalamus. This heat-regulating center is divided into two sections. One is the heat-losing center, which reduces body heat when it is stimulated. The other is the heat-promoting section, which increases body heat when it is stimulated. Multiple factors influence the heat-regulating center of the hypothalamus. When there is an increase in the blood's temperature, the heat loss center sends impulses to the skin, causing it to dilate and sweating to occur. If the environmental temperature reaches 115 degrees Fahrenheit, as in the desert, the body uses this means to cool itself. As mentioned previously, the kidney preserves water to be used in sweating by means of urine concentration. If a naked body is exposed to an environmental temperature Below freezing, the body's skin will show vasoconstriction. A normal person without clothing when exposed to low temperatures for a long period of time will eventually start to shiver. The heat-promoting portion of the temperature-regulating center then sends out impulses to the muscles to contract. This muscular activity can increase heat production. 
The Creator placed an automatic thermostat in the human body, which is superior and far more sophisticated than any that man has invented. It is yet another example of the body's emergency backup system. This particular backup system involves the cardiovascular system, kidney function system, respiratory system, and metabolic system. The hormonal system also uh, uh, systems also have an influence upon body temperature, especially the thyroid hormone. When the body is exposed to cold weather for several weeks, the hypothalamus releases a hormone that influences the anterior pituitary gland to increase its production of the thyrotropic hormone, which in turn stimulates the thyroid gland to produce more thyroxin. By this means, heat production is increased during the winter months. What causes a fever? There are many causes, but the most common cause for fever is a bacterial or viral invasion of the body. It has been demonstrated that certain substances from these invaders of the body cause body temperature to increase, and the thermostat of the heat-regulating center becomes set at a higher level. This higher temperature is lethal, especially to gonococcal and syphilitic invaders, and allows for increased chemical reactions necessary for the repair of damaged cells. When a person is sick from an infection, it is essential to keep the fluid intake up so the body can also cool itself. Dehydration is an important factor when the temperature goes too high. This well-coordinated backup system of temperature control had to come into existence all at the same time, since extreme fluctuating climatic temperatures may exist from summer to winter. This system had to be working perfectly. While a hot climate causes one set of changes to occur, a cold climate will cause the opposite changes to occur. Such a system could not take millions of years to evolve because the need for regulation is not only from hot weather to cold weather, but moment by moment. One environmental effect would have inhibited the development of the opposite environmental effect. This elaborate backup system for emergencies of extreme changes in temperature required forethought and planning by a creator in order to put it into existence. Ponder this question for a moment. Could the thermostat control of temperature in your house have just evolved without planning and design? Now, what Dr. Alford does is to go through one area of the body after another and to call attention to the fact that any variation leads to diseases. Too much variation kills the person. And this is an obvious fact, and most evolutionists choose to disregard the medical data or don't know it. She says, for example, the evolutionist does not accept the second law of thermodynamics because he wants to save face. These evolutions are not educated enough in human or animal pathology to re realize that their findings are due to congenital 
abnormalities. Some almost go into a state of shock when they are confronted with his viewpoint, unquote. She's referring to the fact that so-called transitional uh, uh, skeletons and all actually represent stages of disease, not of evolution. Then she goes into a great many other things that point to uh, the fact that it had to be instant creation. Now, quote just these few sentences. Cosmic dust, which is present <coughs> in space, reaches both the moon's and earth's surfaces. The average amount of dust that accumulates per year on the surface of the moon can be measured. When the total depth of the dust on the moon is divided by this figure, it reveals that the age of the moon is less than 10,000 years. Why wasn't the public informed of this information? Our tax dollars paid for those space explorations. Did NASA suppress it because it contradicts the evolutionary theory? As taxpayers, we have a right to all the facts, even when those facts do not support the theory of evolution. You may remember, I do vividly, that there was a great deal of uh, fuss about what was going to happen on the first moon landing. The cosmic dust would be so deep that the space vessel would sink down into the dust, and they had long spider-like webs to prevent that. <laughs> all of which was unnecessary. It did not sink into billions of years of cosmic dust. But immediately they said nothing about it at all. The information was quietly shelved. So this is a very important book. It's a delightful book. At times it's a bit technical, but it's well worth reading if you can uh, locate a copy. As I say, I was very grateful to Ken Higgins that he found me a copy. Neil Armstrong's um, second statement <clears throat> from the moon was that there was very little dust because they had not only the, the, the long legs on the lunar module, they had large pod feet because they didn't want it to, to sink into the thick dust, which if it had been accumulating for millions of years would have been substantial. There's no atmosphere on their moon. So if the moon's been there for billions of years, then their assumption was, since there's no atmosphere to burn up the particles that land on the moon, there must be a tremendous accumulation of, of uh, space debris and dust and, and such on the surface of the moon. So he said that's one giant leap for a man. No, that's one small step, step for, for a man, man, one giant leap for mankind. And then said there's very little dust or something to that effect. Well, that was his second <laughs> statement. It's obvious. We all sat in television and watched the, the pictures. The thrusters on the uh, lunar module are pointing down. If there's no gravity there, you know, in other words, the dust, uh, you know, would roil up in the air, uh, you know, be flying around, and it would have totally obscured the area for probably several hundred yards if there'd been any great quantity of dust there they wouldn't have been able to see for quite some time. Yet, we saw the thing land, and it was just clear as a bell, and they went, you know, 
uh, they landed right, right down on the uh, surface. Mm -hmm. So it was obvious. There uh, was another point that's been brought out by some creationists is that if the universe is billions of years old, much originating far long before life supposedly evolved on the earth, but if the universe is billions of years old, there's all this debris subject to the laws of gravitation that it long ago should have basically cleaned out the universe of all the space dust. It all should have been accumulated by the different planets and by the sun should have absorbed, the gravity should have absorbed all the space debris long ago and yet there's still a tremendous amount of it floating out there. Well, one of my, one of my questions I like to ask doctors, I said if evolution is true, why does the body reject transplanted organs? It would seem that if there was no problem that the human body would accept any other human organ. Uh, if it's a little bit different, then it will, act, uh, you know, it'll acclimatize itself to what are the, whatever the differences are, and uh, <clears throat> and go on living. But every body that gets a transplant has to have chemicals that yes. block the body's natural defenses that fights infection and fights uh, cells that are that are different. So there's no mechanism in the body that I can see that would allow evolution uh, to exist. There, there's no evolving mechanism. Darwin's original idea was not mutation. That's, that's the neo-Darwinism. The original Darwin, Darwin's original theory was natural selection that the stronger animal bred with a stronger animal and they just mm -hmm. they produced a little bit stronger offspring and uh, artificial selection is what we do to breed better cattle and better corn and, and such and it, and it works but when you breed cattle all you get is cattle and cattle don't breed with anything else so now they, they very early realized that natural selection was not possible as a means of changing from one life form to another, mm -hmm. so they came up with the idea of mutations, that animals mutated, so they actually changed dramatically from one thing into, not so dramatically, but over a long, long period of time. But we know from, from our knowledge of genetics that our chromosomes are a very, very delicate thing. If you mess them up in the slightest, that's why women aren't allowed to get x-rays. Mm -hmm. Medicine and alcohol can upset oh. the genetic uh, code and create mass deformity. Most, almost all mutations are harmful. That's right. And most are deadly. That's right. And yet that's the mechanism. Something which produces death is a mechanism that's now proposed for evolution. Well, it's just like... Uh you know, the uh, Ebola virus and AIDS virus and all of these killer viruses, uh, they become more resistant. That's, you know, the only change that they make is it's a defensive mechanism to, to survive. It's not to change into something else. Well, Darwinism and evolution is a religious faith. Yes. It's not a science. Uh, and it does require a lot of faith to believe it, as Rush, you've indicated in that book. It would take a great deal of faith to believe that these changes could occur. <laughs> in fact, it would take a faith to believe in the absolute impossible. Mm -hmm. um, therefore, the, quote, 
science, close quote, aspect of it rearranges the data to fit into this pre-assigned scheme, this pre-assigned uh, religion. And um, it's at war with Orthodox biblical Christianity because we're, they're two rival religions. Yes. Well, it's an interesting thing that uh, of late there have been uh, several books challenging uh, Darwinism by men who are not uh, Christian or creationist. Most notably, I believe his name is Philip Johnson, a law professor at the University of California, has written two books that have upset the academic community because they apparently feel it's shameful for an academician to come out and uh, treat Darwinism as nonsense. That's their form of blasphemy. <laughs> yes. What were those titles again, Rush? I've heard them, but I can't recall. I uh, will get them for you. I haven't ordered the second book, but I have uh, read the first. Was that Darwin on Trial? <laughs> Was that his uh, book? That could be one of the titles. There is such a book, Darwin on Trial. That could be Johnson's book. But it, it, evolution is really a fairly easy <laughs> theory to attack. It is not irrational. It, it is not reasonable. It does not make sense, and it is not scientific. And so it's not too hard to poke holes in it. But what the only al the reason they hang on to it is because the only alternative to a supreme being creating things is for those things to come about by natural laws. So they they hang on to this that well maybe evolution didn't happen in this way but it did happen. We know it happened because right. we're here and we're not going to believe in a god. Yes. Because if we believe if we say a god put us here then something then we might even be responsible to that That's god. Right. He might even reveal himself That's and right. heaven forbid. Yeah, therefore they have um, anti-theological presuppositions that guide their decision. That's precisely the case. It's not a matter of objective reason. Well, my, my great objection is that they spend a lot of tax dollars looking for the unprovable uh, because uh, they spend all of their time applying for government grants so they can keep pro trying to prove the unprovable. And it's job security. Uh, for this pop science that's going on nowadays uh, in all areas. They, they, they study, uh, they spend more time in college learning how to successfully apply for government grant money than they do learning how to do good science. That's right. It's amusing to watch some of these public television nature shows and how they talk about an animal, even a plant, developing the ability. Mm -hmm. yeah. As though yes. the, an animal or a plant consciously decided that it need to needed to change in a particular way for a particular need. Well, it's, it's part of the propaganda thing. That, you know, the propaganda is pervasive, particularly on public television. Every single program, they got to get their, <laughs> their message in there. And it's, uh, it's so blatant that uh, it's not worth the time to listen to it. The rest of the program is ruined by their erroneous suppositions. As Rush pointed out, partially developed organisms just couldn't survive. <coughs> it's totally irrational.
Well, I'd like to go on to something else now. This is a classic from the last century, Reflections on History by Jacob Burkhart, uh, whose best-known work, of course, is on the civilization of the Renaissance. The introduction to this edition was uh, by Gottfried Dietze, a professor in the graduate school at Johns Hopkins. Neither of the men were Christian, neither Dietze nor in the last century Burkhardt. And what we uh, need to recognize then is that while Burkhardt's position was a brilliant and sometimes uh, telling one, he was favorable to the Renaissance although critical of it. And he was not favorable to uh, Orthodox Christianity, in particular Calvinism. One of the things he commented about that uh, he felt was disastrous in our time is the renunciation of history. He felt Americans were especially guilty of renouncing history. Everything was new, the world was new, nothing mattered except the present and the future, which they were going to make. Well, if you uh, do not pay attention to history, then you are guilty of what uh, Disraeli, the English Prime Minister, uh, called the very great folly. And he said, men who uh, neglect history, pay no attention to the past, will repeat the blunders of their predecessors. And of course, at that point, we have to agree with uh, Disraeli and with Burkhardt. However, Burkhardt was very objective at points because he calls attention to the fact that the state is determined by religion. It's the religious faith of the people, whatever it may be, humanism, Christianity, Buddhism, Islam, that determines what the state is going to be. And the code of law comes from the religion so that a society is an expression uh, of what the people believe. And if their faith is wrong, then their state's going to be wrong. And it will lead to despotism, and despotism always gains the upper hand and abuses religion by using it as a prop. So religion begins by molding the law and the state. Then the state, as it gains in power, takes over and controls religion, which is, of course, finally suicidal. Now, this kind of thinking on uh, Burkhardt's part made him uh, very influential 
To him, uh, there are three great powers in society, the state, religion, and culture. We're not used to thinking of culture as a separate entity. Well, culture is religion externalized, as Henry Van Til pointed out. And when the culture, again, is controlled by the state, you have a further decline of society. So uh, we have a crisis in our culture today because our culture is dominated by the state. The state funds the arts. The state controls education. The state now is in every area of life and thought trying to control the churches and the Christian schools and the family, the only areas of independence. So, his reflections on history are important for us because we are at a critical point in history. Unless we recapture the initiative, unless, again, uh, men's faiths uh, are expressed in such a way that not only church and state but culture are shaped by their faith, the state is going to destroy everything. Well, as you point out in Christianity and the state rush, the state is a religious phenomenon. Yes. As, as he pointed out, and of course the dominant religion today is secularism and uh, humanism, and it is another rival religion at war with Christianity. Yes. And the fight will be a fight to the death. And re Christian Reconstructionists are sometimes uh, misunderstood and maligned. We don't believe in revolution or taking up arms against the state. It's the power of the Spirit of God and the Word of God and our ideas that pose a threat and our obedience that pose a threat to the uh, to the state. And they recognize that, and that's why they're so hostile. Well, oh, you were going to say something. Well, I'm just going to say the American government has chosen a different path. Anything and everything goes in the way of religion from devil worship to whatever, right. uh, so that the American government has taken the view that they don't want any religion to, to gain dominance or even prominence. Uh, that way they can marginalize religion and... and, and except their own religion. Well, except their own, yes. but it's no threat to them. That's right. Uh, they have dominance and, uh, and uh, they don't want any uh, competition. That's right. The problem, I, as I see it, is in part this. We have too long had both church and state feeling that the only way to uh, get things right is to control everything from the top. That's right. So it has been an effort in the past by the church to control the state and culture, and in the modern era, the state to control culture and religion. And this is wrong, and this is why I believe the emphasis that we take as Christian Reconstructionists is alone the sound one. It has to begin in the lives of the people and through their lives affect the world around them. In no other way can you have a truly free and Christian culture. I'm going to go back to a book that I have mentioned uh, previously, some time back, 
It's a book that troubles me. I've had it close to my desk and I pick it up and browse in it because it seems such a tragedy and it deals with slavery. The book is by Shane White and the title is Somewhat More Independent, The End of Slavery in New York City, 1770 to 1810. It was produced by the University of Georgia Press in 1991. <coughs> I don't think the title is altogether good. But what it does tell us is that there was slavery in both the North and the South. We're accustomed to thinking of uh, slavery as more prevalent in the South. But that was not true. For example, we read uh, in 1790, when the first national census was taken, every third inhabitant of Kings County on the western end of Long Beach was black and almost six in every ten white households owned slaves. In the town of New Utrecht, 38% of the population was black and three out of every four households owned slaves. As late as 1810, more than 60% of white households in Flatbush, another town in Kings, contained slaves. Yet, in spite of these quite striking figures and the obvious importance of the topic, there have been few attempts to analyze slavery in New York and New Jersey. In the South, one out of 17 white men owned a slave. The percentage of ownership was much greater in the North. They called it by different names, didn't they? Indentured servitude. Uh, no, this doesn't include indentured servitude. Mm -hmm. These are black slaves. I, you know, I don't know if you read that article, but there was, they dug up a graveyard a cemetery of, uh, with uh, graves of black slaves in New York and how they could tell they were slaves was apparently there was some deformity of the bones because of wearing the chains and the, the, the ankle bracelets and so forth. Hmm. I, I don't know about that, but uh, I think it's quite uh, startling. Uh, well, let me read a little more. Overall then, uh, probably about four out of every ten white households within a 10 to 12 radius of New York City owned slaves. The ratio of slaveholding to non-slaveholding households effectively highlights the striking involvement of whites from this region in the institution of slavery. There were proportionately more households containing slaves in New York's hinterlands than in the whole of any southern state. In Maryland, 36.5% of white households owned slaves. In South Carolina, 34%. And 
and in North Carolina, 30%. But in Kings, Queens, and Richmond counties, the figure was 39.5%. This is a startling fact. The North was the prime slaveholding area. And yet the South is historically thought of as the slaveholding area of the United States. Now, there are various reasons for the difference. You had very early Calvinists like uh, Hopkins in the North start anti-slavery societies so that you had an antipathy to slavery. For example, uh, John Jay uh, was the first uh, Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. He was uh, an old-fashioned Calvinist, a very devout man, and he regularly bought slaves, but he also freed them uh, he said, when their faithful services shall have afforded a reasonable retribution. In other words, he bought them and trained them for freedom and then released them. So that his perspective was very, very different from that of some people. But even then, the others, public opinion and the direction of things, the emphasis of the churches uh, was such that uh, uh, slavery went out. Was Wilberforce it, mentioned in there? What? Wilberforce? No, because, of course, he was influential in England, and at that time the communications weren't that uh, great, so that... Uh, he was not known too well in this country at the time. I just wonder if he had any effect. No, apparently none. His name is not even mentioned in the index. Well, uh, what began to happen with the Christianization in depth of the people that very often they placed the wishes of the slaves on a higher level than you would expect. For example, we read, uh, the owner of a slave woman was about to remove into the country with his family, but the slave was not willing to go. So they didn't. Similarly, in 1802, a purchaser was sought for an 18-year-old slave who was being sold because of his unwillingness to remain with a family lately removed into the country, a displacement that had apparently led to unpleasantness and disagreement with the rest of the servants. The diary of Alexander Coventry, for instance, contains a couple of in examples from the lower Hudson in the late 1780s, where the wishes of the slave were in fact 
paramount. Hmm. Well, it was this kind of attitude that led to a totally different view of slavery and to the progressive uh, emancipation of the slaves uh, and uh, helping them buy their freedom, a, a variety of means used. Now, Shane White, the author, does not go into why the difference in the North and South. I'd like to uh, propose what I believe was the reason for the problem. Precisely as they were freeing the slaves in the North, Hegelian thinking was coming over into New England. Unitarianism arose there. The Unitarians were Hegelians. They believed in the conflict of interests as essential to progress. Whereas from a Christian perspective, the harmony of interests was essential. So increasingly you had no longer an anti-slavery movement that was like that created by Alexander Hopkins, considering the welfare of the owner and of the slave trying to work out some kind of compensation, trying to make it fair and equitable to all concerned. Instead, the feeling was the only way to progress is through conflict, so that you have to have a head-on conflict. And the, unit, uh, the uh, Unitarians were largely the abolitionists, so their attitude was that the slave owner was a villain who had to be fought, and the slaveholding power put down. Well, they immediately got the backup of the whole South, where there were actually more anti-slavery societies in the early part, early quarter, first quarter of the last century than in the North. And they began to justify and vindicate slavery. Well, I said I keep coming back to this book because it has troubled me and I'm afraid we have the same mentality today that the abolitionists did. Whenever we see an evil, whether people are on the left or on the right, they want to fight. They want to smash the other side. They don't want to sit down and work out the problem. And I, I do believe that is leading to a great deal of conflict between various nationalities and races, between various sections of the United States, so that uh, we feel that instead of complementing each other, we should be at war with each other. What uh, part did the Industrial Revolution play in this? Uh, certainly the Industrial Revolution took place, uh, took hold much more in the North than it did in the South. The South tended to want to stay with the methods that they had always used, and they were, agriculture was more labor-intensive. There must have been a lot of surplus slave labor in the North after uh, a lot of the tasks that had been done previously uh, were done by machines. I'm glad you brought that up. 
the Industrial Revolution began in Britain. And many of the men who were key figures in the Industrial Revolution were very devout men. But the Industrial Revolution was driven out of the church, as it were. And the church, which was very strong in Scotland and important on the English scene, became increasingly relative. And it was because they were small-minded. If you go back and read the sermons of the time, you find that one of the things they immediately went to war with the industrialists about was Sunday observance. Well, you couldn't stop trains the minute it became the Sabbath. You couldn't shut down uh, steel mills that required continuous operation you had to keep them running. And the industrialists were willing to do anything and everything to further uh, the opportunities of workmen by variations in the times of work to be able to worship. But the clergy acted as though this was uh, the ultimate evil that it was going to destroy Christian England and Christian Scotland if they didn't shut down. Well, they couldn't any more than they can shut down our power plants on uh, Saturday evening and keep them uh, shut down until Monday morning. There are too many things that require continuous operation. They do so, that out in the islands. I had a friend who went out to the uh, New Caledonia or somewhere out uh -huh. there with radio equipment, setting up a radio station. And uh, I, I guess they had, I don't know whether they Seventh-day Adventists or what the, the uh, missionary group was there, but uh, <laughs> they put them off the air for 24 hours during their yeah. religious observance. They just shut all the power off and everybody had to quit <laughs> whatever they were well, doing. Well, on a small island or a small community that can be done. But you cannot do it in an urban civilization. And in terms of our Lord's words, there are works of necessity that cannot stop. I think there was another point too, Rush, and this was in, I noticed your next book is Chadwick's. He wrote a book um, uh, secularization in Europe in the 19th yes. century or something like yes. that. He pointed out that another problem was that the established church in England really was largely a class-conscious church yes. and really didn't identify with the laborers. And he's not really talking about socialism, but just recognizing their difficulties and needs and meeting those needs. And that, too, I think, goes along yes. with what you were talking about, didn't identify with them. Well, it was a tremendous opportunity uh, the churches could have commanded the Industrial Revolution had they've been ready to recognize the realities. But instead, they de-Christianized it and the uh, industrialists went their way and the church its way. And it was the beginning of the end for the uh, importance of the church in British life. And that uh, carried over into this country 
the uh, early industrialists used to make a point of close contact with their workers, sharing meals with them, inviting them into their home, uh, into their church. Uh, I've mentioned how at Grove City College, Hans Senholtz, uh, retired now, professor of economics there, had a house that was about a block, a block and a half, a very short distance, around the corner virtually, from the steel mill. The original owner had built this uh, huge brick mansion. He had built it as close as he could to the plant because he kept in touch with the workers. He was there. He knew them all by name. That was the Industrial Revolution in its inception. And the churches helped kill that. And uh, I think that was one of the reasons why the Industrial Revolution went outside uh, Christianity and became secular. Yes. Well, if there are no further questions on that particular topic, I'd like to take up briefly a book by Owen Chadwick, who uh, is one of the great English uh, historians of Christianity. And this is uh, one of the Oxford History of the Christian Church series. The title of this one, The Popes and European Revolution. This was uh, printed by the Clarendon Press at Oxford, 1981. It's a sizable book of uh, about 650 pages, which covers very, very thoroughly every aspect. Now, one of the things that interests me in particular is the theme of charity, because I feel that uh, while Catholics learned a great deal from Calvin here, the Protestants forgot everything they had learned from Calvin. He comments on the fact that in every Catholic town could be found clubs, part religious, part secular, known as brotherhoods, confraternities, or sodalities. And these were both for male and female, depending on the particular organization. They were often called by a saint's name, St. Andrew, St. Antony, St. Mary, and so on. Well, one of the most important things they did was to take care of charity in their area. Now, this was a very, very important thing. It meant that these people, the believers in a particular parish, came together, had a social fellowship, but also put on activities, raised funds, gave money, to take care of the charities in their parish, and often beyond their parish. But this was done even in the very poor parishes. Everyone went overboard to see what they could do in the way of raising money or leaving something. So it was an important aspect of everyday life 
that bound the people together in a remarkable way. These were created by the membership. And this was important. It was a lay activity. And yet Protestants who stress the priesthood of all believers have not given attention to organizing the laymen for meeting the needs of the people in the community. So uh, this was a very, very important aspect of Catholic life for generations. Incidentally, unrelated to what I'm going to say and have said, this startled me. It's about styles and the times. And uh, I'll quote what Chadwick said. About the middle of the century, Italian women not of the upper class adopted topless dresses so that their breasts were exposed. A famous preacher noted with interest that his own attitude was entirely different in pulpit and in confessional. In sermons he whipped the woman with words, lascivious, vile, immoral. He thought their behavior all those things. But when he found it in the confessional, he realized that fashions are odd, that the power of common custom is infectious, that though he must reproach the woman in his box, he could not think it to be for her so heavy a sin. <laughs> Which I thought was rather amusing. Well, uh, to speak of uh, more on charity, the various monasteries and convents also worked hard to meet social needs. And as a result, both monks and nuns did everything they could to take care of charity in their area. This was done in the Middle Ages. It was done to a heightened extent by Calvin. And all the religious houses gave out alms. For example, the Benedictine house of St. Martin at Palermo was restricted to blue blood, that is, the monks, and had revenues sufficient to sustain elegant life for its members. Every day those same revenues fed in the courtyard of the monastery between 150 and 200 people on soup, macaroni, bread, and wine. This was a duty whether or not the house was fat with money. The Redemptorist house uh, at Chiarani in central Italy struggled with such desperate poverty that it could hardly feed its members its own monks. Yet they reckoned that only 10 or 12 families in the locality received no dough from the monastery. That's how meagerly the monks lived. So uh, this was the kind of thing they did that was remarkable. It was what the early church did so that here they were in continuity with the early church. Well, there's so much like this 
for example, he speaks of the scholarship in some of the uh, areas. And uh, the things some of these men did, there isn't time to go into it, but uh, some remarkable scholarship also was furthered by a few of the monasteries. Well, so much here I'd like to comment on, but one thing uh, very briefly. The Catholic laity wanted the popes to take a nephew and make him a cardinal and use him as the chief executive officer of their pontificate because they felt family loyalty is better than a bureaucracy. And so for generations, when a pope was named, almost always he would locate a very capable nephew in his family make him a cardinal and put him in charge of running things. If he didn't, he was criticized. They didn't trust the others to be loyal or faithful, but rather to be self-serving. But you see what has happened in our culture since then. We have become anti-family. Right. So that now nepotism, hiring a relative, is a terrible thing. It's true. In my lifetime, some congressmen have hired their wives and relatives, but they've also now given themselves to hiring people from their district. It can't be called nepotism, but they're not as good as their own family was. You can tick off your own family members better if they don't work. So it is interesting that for a long time the papacy found that uh, nepotism worked, that it was an essential thing. Well, uh, it's a very interesting uh, book by a, a brilliant scholar who gives us the pros and cons about the history of the papacy conscientiously and honestly. Our time is up now. Thank you all for listening. And God bless you.